This is a crowd podcast. Stallone. It's not even a name. Maybe it once was, but not now. Not really. Now, it's a brand. Millions all over the world know it. Say that one word and it means so many things. Blue-collar grit, blue-chip blockbusters, brawn over brain, testosterone, tensed muscle, a big smile, a square jaw, and a pretty girl on the arm. An American dream. It even sounds like it's been cooked up by a marketing man. Stallone, half stallion, half lone wolf. But what if that isn't you? What if you don't have a choice about it? If you're shackled to something that's both a gift and a burden? Because this is the story of Sage Stallone, not Sylvester. The story of the son, not the famous father. It's 1996, Wall Street, New York. A bell chimes loud. Sylvester smiles wide in a baggy black suit. Demi Moore, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis are next to him, grins fixed. Behind them, there's clapping, cheering, excited chatter. Traders who are about to send the booming planet Hollywood stock to the stars. And maybe they're right. Maybe the planet is Hollywood's to have. New markets are opening up, Russia, China, Brazil. Nowhere's able to resist fast food with a side order of stardust. There's nowhere that the A-list can't crack. Except, maybe there is. Across the country on the California coast, Sage sits on a black leather bedspread. The room is dark. His face is lit by the flicker of a screen. He's alone, and the air is filled with screams. Sage likes fast food. He likes films, but not the movies his father makes. Not ones that please focus groups before packing cinemas. Not the ones that can launch a global chain of family restaurants. He likes ones that do the exact opposite. He likes films marked by their notoriety, not popularity. On his screen are obscure horror flicks, low on production values, but high on sex, violence, and death. One's called Cannibal Holocaust. Another is I Drink Your Blood. While his dad is out cutting deals and building muscle, Sage sits up late and alone. He disappears into worlds where star names, big budgets and widespread appeal don't exist. Because Sage is a boy who learns early that his surname may eclipse whatever he does. He wants something different, not something easy. He wants to define himself a clean canvas, free of expectations and assumptions. Because that's the thing with a name like Stallone. It opens doors, but it closes minds. It closes minds about who you are and what you can be. It's a name, a type of fame, that runs generations deep. The sort that shakes a family tree for decades to come. The sort that diverts bloodlines down a different route forever. That's the challenge for Sage. To live with his heritage and still forge his own path. To be his own man rather than his old man. And sometimes that challenge is insurmountable. No one's quite sure where the name comes from. 
A wary policeman, a lurid newspaper report, a notorious dive bar. But everyone agrees it fits. Hell's Kitchen is what they call it. It's a square mile of squat apartment blocks and bars on the west side of Manhattan. It's nothing exceptional to look at, nothing compared to the shining skyscrapers to the east. But Hell's Kitchen brings heat to New York. It's where bootleggers brew moonshine during Prohibition, where immigrant gangs wage war in the 1970s. It's the Wall Street of the black market, a rough, tough, dog-eat-dog neighborhood. And in 1946, it's where Sylvester is born. Sage is the next generation, but he's born into another world. Sage is conceived while his father is making Rocky, the film that sets both their lives on a new path. A few years earlier, Sage would have been the son of a jobbing actor, part-time cleaner, occasional waiter, just another kid jostling for position in New York's rat race. But not after Rocky. It's a knockout success that no one ever saw coming. The budget's small, the script's a three-day rush job, and Sylvester only sells it to the film's makers on the condition he's given the starring role. On screen, off screen, it's a story of a wannabe seizing their shot. Rocky doesn't win the fight, but the film beats all others. It brings in nearly $20 million more than any other movie in 1976. That's an amount of money that changes everything. So Sage isn't brought up in Hell's Kitchen. He's protected from life's hard hustles. He grows up on the other coast, in another life. There, there's a wolfskin rug on the floor, French sculptures around the room, a portrait of Rocky on the wall, and outside, a swimming pool surrounded far beyond by an eight-foot wall. This is the Pacific Palisades. It's 20 miles away from downtown LA. The air's clearer, the beach is cleaner, life is slower. It's where celebrities come to be free rather than be seen. And it's where Sylvester spends some of those millions from Rocky. He sinks them into a replica French villa. Not that you'd know, not from the road. Tourists come out of LA clutching maps of the stars' homes. But when they roll by the Stallones, all they see is a gate, a hedge, a smooth, tall wall. Some stand on the roofs of their rental cars, but it makes no difference. There's no view into the house. It's a home that's meant to isolate those inside, isolate them from the rising crime and cruelty of LA's poorer neighborhoods, from the eyes of the curious star spotters, from a life of struggle that Sylvester never wants to return to. But that home, that life, can also isolate a family from each other. Sage is only five when they take a trip to British Columbia's Pines and Peaks. After the success of Rocky, Sylvester has been chasing smaller wins, a couple of sequels, a few middling successes, nothing with the clout of his breakthrough role. Out here though, between the Rocky Mountains and the North Pacific, Sylvester's onto something. It's a story America wants to hear, a salvation story for a history it doesn't want to remember, but can't forget. It's called First Blood, and it stars an American commando, haunted by the Vietnam War. A good man who's gone through bad times, 
A man whose honourable intentions are misunderstood. A man who gets in too deep as he fights for what's right. It's the story of Rambo, but it's also the story of a nation. At least, the one that the nation wants to hear. Sage watches Sylvester. Headband, vest, bulging biceps. He watches him leap from cliffs, shoot guns, get revenge. And then, as the film blows up, Sage goes back to school. His schools are used to stars. One of them's in San Fernando Valley. It's spread over a five-acre campus and guarded by armed men. It costs $9,000 a year to attend. But there's no big sign, no grand entrance. It knows what its parents want for their children. It knows that stars want seclusion. Cher and Michael Jackson were there as kids. Frank Sinatra sends his son. All the pupils dress the same, khaki trousers and polo shirts. The idea is anonymity. Child actors and children of actors are treated the same as their less famous classmates. The theory is good, but kids, you know kids. Kids see everything, and kids are cruel. They see Sage's thick black hair, his heavy eyebrows, the deliberate way he carries himself, and putting it all together, they see a target. Sylvester pays for extra security at the school gate, but he can't protect his son from the weight of the Stallone name. This is how Sage remembers his school days. This is what it was like for him. I was an easygoing guy, he says, but school was pretty much people trying to challenge me to a fight, people saying, Rambo, Rocky. Sage's bullies know the real thing isn't about to appear on the scene. Sylvester's name and fame are present every day for Sage. The man himself isn't. He's busy. He's breadwinning. A film a year at least, often two. And so Sage returns to the villa behind the wall, to his mother, to his younger artistic brother, and the three live together in luxury and under a shadow. In Sylvester's absence, there are rumors that it's not just his work schedule that's pulling him away, that Hollywood's temptations are also to blame. Sylvester splits from Sage's mother when he's six. They divorce when Sage is nine. Sage goes to find his father to confront him, the one place where he knows he'll find him. He takes a role in Rocky V. It's his first time on stage. He's just 14 and he isn't really into acting, but this role doesn't require much acting, not for Sage. He's playing Rocky's son, the son Rocky neglects as he chases his dreams of stardom. The son who faces up to the schoolyard bullies alone. Sage knows the character. This is how he remembers the role. When I was screaming, you never spent time with me, you never spent time with my mother, that was true. I was looking into my father's face and really saying that. I got a lot of things out. We broke into tears a few times. But those tears don't make the way forward any clearer. After that acting debut in Rocky V, Sage acts alongside his father once again. They shoot daylight. 
It's five months inside a replica of a collapsed tunnel, which is supposed to be beneath the Hudson River. There's neck-high water, mud that's actually boiled spinach, and for one scene, 2,000 live, very real rats. And that's Sage's final fling with the fame game. From then on, he veers off into left field. He sets up a distribution company, Grindhouse, which re-releases old horror classics and blood-spattered B-movies. Bob Morofsky is his partner in the business. The mid-90s is a world still ruled by VHS tapes. Films are sourced, copied and sent through the post. It's an analogue era. One in which films can't slip into the ether. They can't be copied, forwarded, streamed and stolen. Their shock values preserved, but it won't last. The speed limits on the information superhighway are lifting. Downloads overtake the old model. It's getting slower, older, it's dying. Bob Morofsky's a film editor and he's good. He makes connections, makes an impression, makes a name. Maybe it's easier when, like Bob, you grow up in a small town in the Midwest, when you arrive in LA with less baggage and more incentive. So as Bob is working on Spider-Man and winning Oscars, Sage drifts. Time's against him and his family burden is getting heavier. Hello everyone, my name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. Sage knows the question is coming. The journalist knows he has to ask it. But together, they dance around it just a little longer. They're on the phone together because of a film called Vic. It's the first film Sage has directed, and he's written it too. But the plot isn't about bloodthirsty gangsters, depraved devil worshippers or mass murderers. Not this time. It's closer to home. And it's close to the bone. It's a short film about an ageing actor whose star is waning in Hollywood's constellation. Once a major player, his roles are getting smaller. His paydays are shrinking. He's not quite washed up, but he's on the way out. And well, that could easily be Sylvester. The planet Hollywood bubble has burst. Time has taken its toll. Younger men have taken the action roles that were once his. Christian Bale, Russell Crowe, Daniel Craig. And times have changed. Budgets that once poured into megastars' pockets are now directed into special effects. Post-production wizardry trumps A-list stardust every time. Sylvester's hit a run of duds, a clunky remake of Get Carter, Driven, a schmaltzy motorsport drama, a couple of films that only have short cinema runs, one dumps straight to video. And so finally, after the fluff and the small talk, 
The journalist asks Sage the question that needs asking. What does your father make of Vic? What does he think of your film? Sage is honest, to a point. This is how he answers. He felt it was too depressing for the screen, says Sage. It's not a Sylvester Stallone movie. He would have preferred I'd gone in a younger, different direction. The rumor is Sylvester feels more strongly than Sage lets on, that Sylvester takes the film's plot as a personal slight. The film premieres in Palm Springs, a short drive out of LA. Sage is there, the cast is there, Sylvester is not. His publicist says he's too busy shooting Rocky Balboa. Rocky Balboa is the sixth installment in the franchise. Rocky's son, the part that Sage once played, is still in it, but Sage isn't. Instead, Sylvester casts a different actor, trimmer, slimmer, in the role. Sage has the dark hair and laconic look of his father, but he doesn't have the same stature. Even into middle age, Sylvester is ripped with muscle. It's part of the look, a nod to the hard graft of the past, a reminder to any casting directors working on future action films. He gets tattoos across his back and chest. He works out. He takes pills and potions, growth hormone and testosterone. When you're a big star, you have to stay big. That's the logic. But Sage, as ever, chooses a different path. He's not interested in keeping fit, just as he isn't interested in blockbuster films or celebrity bars. One day, Sylvester says to a journalist that Sage avoids the gym like the plague. Sage doesn't do any of the stuff that the LA in crowd do. No wheatgrass smoothies, no dawn yoga, no cleansing diets. He smokes, a couple of packets a day the high-tar, heavy-duty kind. He drinks, not alcohol, but Mountain Dew, can after can of sweet soda. And he eats all the supersized junk that America makes best. Crisps, candies, donuts and burgers. Wrappers and takeaway boxes lie across the floor of his home in the Hollywood Hills. Sage keeps strange hours. He wakes at 3 a.m. and goes back to bed at 7 a.m. He'll go days on end without seeing anyone, without hearing another voice, even his own. He'd hoped to make Vic into a feature-length film. It never happens. His business, Grindhouse, is wilting. Streaming services are flooding homes with thousands of films on demand. He has little reason to do much. With an allowance and a house, he has even less need. And so when nobody hears from Sage for four days, nobody thinks anything of it. It'd be more unusual if they did. It's his housekeeper who finds him, in a dark house, curtains drawn, the air reeking of nicotine and old food. Sage lies there, dead at 36. And in death, he's drawn back into the vortex he fought to escape. Even as the coroner arrives to collect Sage's body, a busload of tourists arrives to snap pictures. Their guide had heard the breaking news and changed the route. The media buzzes with speculation Sage has overdosed, that his father has hired a private detective to sniff out the truth. One of his cousins posts on social media. He blames Sylvester for ignoring Sage, not returning his calls. He deletes the words. 
but it's fuel for the flames. Sage is dwarfed by his surname once again, dragged back into the glare of the spotlight, a reluctant supporting role to the main Stallone. There's no outpouring of public grief, no bouquets or tributes, just a ripple of curiosity, another twist in Sylvester's story. It's not drugs either. A couple of months after Sage's death, the toxicology report comes back clear. Sage has a small amount of sedative in his system, but not enough to kill him. Instead, it's heart disease. The arteries clogged and narrow. The coroner thinks Sage's smoking causes the clots that eventually squeeze the life out of him. Three years later, and Sage makes his second and final appearance in a Rocky film. It's called Creed. It focuses on the next generation. In it, Rocky is turned from fighter to trainer. There's a scene with a young boxer he's nurturing. The boxer notices a picture in Rocky's house and picks it off the mantelpiece. The camera zooms in. It's a real one, not a mock-up. It's of Sage and Sylvester together. Sage is six or seven, little more than waist high. He stands in front of Sylvester. Both have their fists cocked. A punch bag swings in front of them. A young boxer asks Sylvester, asks Rocky, if it's his son. This is Sylvester's line. Yeah, it's my kid, Robert. I tried training him, but he just didn't like fighting. He didn't take to it. He moved to Vancouver with his girlfriend, I think they're having a great old time up there. I hear from him now and then, but it was tough for him to live in Philadelphia, being Rocky's son. This episode of Death of a Film Star was written by Mike Henson and performed by me, Emma Clark. It was edited by Charlie Frost. For research, we read from the archives of the Financial Times, the LA Times, the Desert Sun, The Sun, The Guardian and People magazine. We watched scenes from Rocky, Creed and Vic. The music we used is from our partner's BMG production music. If this is your first episode, go back and listen to the one on Robin Williams. And if you enjoyed this episode and would like another podcast to listen to, Search for Death of a Sports Star and start with our one on boxing legend, Sonny Liston. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Hey there, I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. 
Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biro, host of the podcast Pop Culture Confidential. Join me as I go way behind the scenes with some of the most influential people in entertainment and media. Hear actors such as Succession's Brian Cox talk about his favorite characters to play. There always has to be a mystery. The audience have to be in a situation where they want to know what's going on. Meet studio execs like Pixar chief Pete Docter and learn his secret on how he makes us cry. Emotion is our first language. And so many others who are defining popular culture, from Obama speechwriter David Litt to Top Chef host Padma Lakshmi. We don't often think about food politically or we don't want to, but it really is. Join me. Search for Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts.